You are listening to the Gable Media Continuing Education Podcast Feed, the most entertaining and convenient way for AEC professionals to get continuing education credits, including AIA-approved courses. As a Gable member, just listen and follow the link in the show notes to take a brief quiz and obtain your credit today. Enjoy. Talk about we want reparations and 40 acres in the middle. And I say... If you look at a city like Baltimore, and I've heard anywhere from 20 to 40,000 vacants. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking to get our 40 acres in a mill, let's just take back block by block by block by block. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Welcome back. I am so excited to be able to start publishing episodes again. These past few months have been a whirlwind for me, and things have gone by in a bit of a blur, but it's been all really great and exciting things. I was selected as one of the recipients of the American Institute of Architects Young Architects Awards for 2022. I also was a juror for the AIA Coat Top 10 Awards. Then I was featured on the Passive House Accelerator podcast. And I also got the opportunity to join the Gable Media Podcast Network. On top of all of that, I've also been having a number of super interesting conversations with a variety of people that I am really excited to be able to share with you in the coming weeks. By joining Gable Media, I am now part of the largest and most engaged architecture, engineering, and construction multimedia network, and it's a network that is empowering global leaders in the AEC industry to entertain, inspire, and share knowledge with the world. There are a number of great shows on the network, so I highly recommend checking them out at gablemedia.com, and of course, I'll link to the network in the show notes. This week's Building Spotlight is the Arch Social Club in Baltimore which is the oldest known, continuously operating African-American social club in the U.S. And it's also the oldest predominantly African-American social club in Baltimore. The club was incorporated in 1912 and moved into its current location in 1972. It's in the building that is the former Shanties Theater, which was built in 1912 as a vaudeville and silent film theater. Between 1912 and 1972, the building served many purposes, including serving as a theater for African Americans, and at one point serving as a theater for Jewish immigrants, showing Yiddish films and hosting live entertainment. I'll post historic and current photos of the building on the Tangible Remnants Instagram page, which is at Tangible Remnants, so head over there to see some great visuals of how this building has evolved over time. I'll also include a link to the report on the building that was prepared by Baltimore's Commission for Historical and Architectural Preservation, also known as CHAP, in case you're curious to learn more. Seeing historic buildings get renovated and put back into good use for the community always gives me good vibes, and I know we need as many of those as possible these days. So to keep good vibes going, I'm happy to kick off this season of the show with a conversation that I had last year with Tanya Harris. Tanya is the founder of Paris Construction and Development, also known as PC&D, and has 20 plus years experience in real estate development. We'll get into her story, so you'll hear how real estate development was not her first career, but she is making a difference in the lives of so many people. She's been focusing on urban revitalization projects in underserved communities and has a model designed to create minimal displacement 
by focusing on vacant and underutilized properties and while fostering home and business ownership among the legacy community. PCND has planted its flag along the Gateway Corridor in West Baltimore and the vibrant Hollands Market neighborhood, which is right outside downtown. Her story inspires me so much because it's a great reminder that it's never too late to start a new path, regardless of your experience level. We all got to do what we feel called to do. This is a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation between me and Tanya Harris of Paris Development. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. And so I remember one of the first times that I met you, I remember being in awe of the fact that there was a Black woman developer doing <laughs> development work. And I was thinking, I haven't met that many people who look like you who do what you do. <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's always nice to be like, oh, there's another Black woman doing amazing things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would love to hear about what got you into development and construction, because you're not only a developer, you're also a general contractor. I don't know. Foolish, maybe. I started on DC when I got into development. So now I'm getting ready to date myself, but I will. <laughs> I got into rehabbing in 1996. Before that, I had owned a courier company. Sorry to interrupt. Courier, like the packages? Like Deadline Express was what it was called. It was a courier company. Yes. Nice. Okay. <laughs> and we would give it the rent package for all the major um, law firms and banks in Washington, D.C. at the time. And we were doing really well. Then something interesting happened. The fax machine came into play. And we could no way beat the fax machine to a, a place. <laughs> right. And then a couple of years later, the internet, AOL, big, big, mm -hmm. big, big time, right? Right. So once that became prominent in the business, a lot of things that we were running to get back and forth to different law firms, they start emailing and they started um, faxing. Gotcha. So I thought to myself, okay, well, I've got to find something else to do here because, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we started out with 20 routes that we would do every day. And by 96, we were down to about, a little less than half, maybe nine rounds. Oh, wow. So at the end of the day, um, we just kept it moving. And I said, I've got to find something else. And so I was reading in the paper. Mm -hmm. And a gentleman said that he had a house that he wanted to sell because he had took it back from an, another rehabber at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't tell you, Nikita, why I would think that I should call him and ask him, can he help me finance this house and I would get it done? I had never, ever, never, ever done anything in construction like this in my life. What? That's yeah. amazing. You just saw the ad in the paper. Like, you know what? Why not? Let me give him a call. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Right? I was 33. I said to myself, Jesus was 33 when he came in his prime. So I, <laughs> I, <love it. laughs> so I said, I guess I can come to my prime at 33 too. Absolutely. I not know anything about anything. Right. <laughs> And so this, this guy, he said, I'll give you a chance. He said that you had the gall to call me and tell me this, this story that you really, you know, on a courier company, you've never done anything like this. But what I did know was how to decorate an interior of a home. A lot of people would come to the different places I had and say, I love how you do your house. So maybe I can do this, right? I just need to find people to do it. And it was by the grace of God. He sent me a good carpenter. Wow. Um, he sent me, and he, this carpenter guy pretty much walked me through the phase of how to get things done. I did my first house. It was at 1122 6th Street Northeast. That was my first house I did. 
And we bought it from him for 15,000. We put 40 in it and we sold it for 85. After I paid everybody off, I cleared $15,000. I thought, well, I may have to do this, (laughs) right? And so that wasn't bad for my first deal. It probably took us about six months. And there, I went around the corner um, to Florida Avenue and I bought three houses there in DC, all of them. Twenty and thirty thousand dollars, sort of like what Baltimore is right now. Right, like, and every one of those houses now are worth no less than six hundred thousand dollars. Every last one of them. I'm sorry, I sold early as I did. <laughs> <laughs> so then, when that carpenter was working with you, did they give you a hard time at all for the being like, "Oh, you've never done this before. You're a woman. What are you doing? Any of that kind of stuff?" When I say to you, he was a godsend. He, was a he taught me. He, he he basically walked me through the process and I trusted him for some reason. You know, he may have been charging me a little bit more, mm-hmm. but you know what? I had to pay to learn somewhere. Yeah, so, exactly. And I continue to do house after house after house mm-hmm. in DC. Most of the things I've done have been two units or more. Mm-hmm. The goal was I was going to get all these houses and I was going to rent them to section eight tenants and I was going to have all this cash flow. And after a couple of houses and having single family homes and seeing how they just didn't take care of them, mm-hmm. it, it just didn't make sense for me. Because what I'm thinking is now it's taking me, once they leave, 60 to 90 days, when that means that's three months of that mortgage that's on me. Oof, right. So the thought was, I'm at least going to have two or more. So if one leaves, I'm still getting a little bit versus nothing. I've done that ever since 1996, I started doing that. I came to Baltimore in 2007 and I bought a building at the 1200 block on West Baltimore street on the corner of Cary in West Baltimore. I bought that building for $150,000 in 2007. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine that worked at First Mariner Bank at the time said that they were trying to get rid of this building along with this powerful CDC at the time. Mm-hmm. They bought me in as a partner. We bought it. I thought I would come and renovate this building. And then it turned out that it was a lot more than I thought it was going to be in terms of what it needed. Mm-hmm. And so we got lucky. We ended up selling it because the CDC said they knew someone from New York. So we ended up selling it for $450,000. So we made three hundred on it. And that was the first time I was in Baltimore. I liked Baltimore, but I didn't know anything about Baltimore. Yeah, and it's definitely a different city from D.C., different projects, different. (laughs) And how they got me to buy this, because at the time they were building out the University of Maryland's Biotech Center. They said, moving this way, they're moving this way, you should get it, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. But it just turned out to be a little more than I expected. So we ended up selling it. I made a little bit of money on it and I took that money back to D.C. (laughs) (laughs) And and did what I know how to do. Right. D.C. market started to pick up a little bit right and then, you know, the crash came in. Then it picked up again right around 2010, 2011. And I just took that money and started doing condo conversions. And then my investor friend that I work with in Baltimore says, hey, Tanya, I have this building at 1015 West Baltimore Street. Mm -hmm. I I know you told me sometime back you did something in Baltimore. Would you be interested in this building? It's only $60,000. I said, okay, I'll go up there and look at it. Mm -hmm. And so I went up and looked at it. And I thought to myself, now, this is crazy. This building is literally three blocks from where I bought that last building on the opposite side right. of the street. <laughs> right. It must be a sign. Or <laughs> and it's only $65,000. So I'll just get it, you know, and 
I'll figure out what to do with it. And the rest of the block, you know, Cecil had owned. So it, it was okay. Everything seemed okay. So I bought that building and I sat on it. I sat on that building for a year and a half. And then I went through the CHAPS process. Mm-hmm. That took me a year. And we finally got it to the point it is now. And it's been a year trying to get gas since the pandemic kicked in. <laughs> oh my goodness. Prayerfully, we'll get it in a couple of months here. Right. So then for that building at 1015, what was it like going through the chat process and dealing with the historic elements of the building? So the architect walked me through that. Mm-hmm. And we had to answer a lot of questions. And the reason we had to go through it is because we were adding on the back half of the building. Right. The building is 136 feet long, but half of it stopped at about 60 feet. And so we wanted to take it all the way back and level out all the floors so that we could have three floors. The biggest thing they didn't like, they didn't want the back of that building to exceed the front facade of the building. So the, in the back half of the building, we could only do eight foot ceilings. But it took us some time to get through the process. It, it was more because of their backlog and all the different people they had on their list. It wasn't that it was really hard for us because we answered a lot of questions up front. The guy, Mr. Gallus, who was the um, main guy in that area, he liked what we wanted to do. He just wanted to make sure that we weren't going to build some tall atrocity and not infringe on the front facade of the building. And so when we went, probably the most exciting part about the chats when we went and we sat for three hours listening to them talk about some windows (laughs) <laughs> then it was it was a big deal i mean they talked about these windows for about three hours right yeah all i needed to show up for was to say hey you follow and they were going to prove me i had to wait three hours and listen to the whole window thing which scared me i said i don't think i'm gonna do too much historical <laughs> and they're going through all this and windows it was deep they were very yeah. serious windows are very deep in the preservation community <laughs> <laughs> i'm like okay all right <laughs> They had people coming to testify, all kinds of things. I was thinking, okay, yeah. (laughs) So when you got the building, were you looking at other vacant lots or were you mainly looking for existing buildings that brought you back to Baltimore? The main reason I came back to Baltimore Mm -hmm. was because it reminded me when I started. And that particular Southwest Baltimore area reminds me when I started. The properties were 30, 40, 50,000 these big buildings for no money. And I truly believe the neighborhood that we're starting in all throughout West Baltimore, those prices are going to increase in the next five or seven years and people are going to miss the curve. I really honestly know it in my soul. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere else to go. Baltimore's the last frontier. They wouldn't be talking about doing a train between DC, Baltimore, Philly, New York, quickly get you there 15, 20, 30. They're not doing that for no reason. There's a reason. Right. There's really nowhere else to go. And Baltimore has some beautiful, beautiful places. And I always call it the tale of two cities because people have no concept of the east side. And if you go to the east side and you see all the nice and quaint little neighborhoods there, people don't have any idea. And quite frankly, I think West Baltimore has a lot more to offer. And if you can get some of those structures back online, and build out a community block by block and respect the legacy residents that are presently living there Mm -hmm. and build a sustainable neighborhood, I think it'll be 
absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. And Baltimore definitely is the tale of two cities and the white Baltimore versus the black Baltimore and the legacy of redlining and all of just the systemic racism that's been going on in that city. There is so much opportunity there. And a lot of it is a lot of the building stock is still there because there wasn't money to tear it down, thankfully. But the number of beautiful, massively large, historic, vacant buildings that are just waiting (laughs) for developers like you. I'm excited for the potential of Baltimore. The idea of building back something sustainably, very excited about it. And I know some of the visions that you have for some of the projects that you're doing, you're looking at doing wraparound services and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about that vision? So we feel like the buildings are just a byproduct. You know, I love when we walk into these old buildings and everybody can't do it, but when I walk into it, I can see what it can be. The walls and what was there is still there in my mind. I see it. It's there. And mm-hmm. so those buildings, they speak to me. They, they speak to me. I hear that. <laughs> you know, I understand completely. Architect, right? <laughs> I understand completely. <laughs> People be looking at me like, you really tripping on this? I'm like, no, this is really, this is beautiful. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so... I say, I would say that the buildings are just a byproduct of what we're really trying to do. What we're trying to do is build generational wealth through all these buildings. You bring up redlining and, and, and people talk about reparations and 40 acres in a meal. And I say, if you look at a city like Baltimore, and I've heard anywhere from 20 to 40,000 vacants. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking to get our 40 acres in a meal, let's just take back block by block by block by block. Absolutely. Before you know it, we got our 40 acres in a meal. We can systematically do our own comps, mm-hmm. finance our own people, yep, and, and build our own small communities block by block, building by building. Exactly. And the goal for us is to teach people that you don't marry buildings, you don't marry homes, mm-hmm. they're an investment. You, you leverage it to get to the next thing, to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And Baltimore has so many subsidized programs that can help people, you know, get into their homes pretty much without PMI. They give you 5,000 for work at home, 10,000, 15,000, all these different kinds of programs where people can buy a home and put down $25,000, not have PMI, systematically live there for three to five years and move on. They can get their equity out or they can rent it out and they can go to the next thing. And I think that's what we want to teach. We want to meet people where they are. I want to really, really get our condo concept going because I believe that everybody doesn't want a house. Right. Right. But most people sway away from condos because they don't understand the concept. And so for us, if we can just teach the concept and keep the condominium fees down, you do them in four types of like, like say you do two to four units. Now this is group economics. You have people working together. All they really have to do is make sure the foyer areas are clean. Most of them have front and backyards because they're sitting right on the front and their roof. So if that's the case, everybody can put in $50, a $100 a month Mm -hmm. to sustain the whole building, right? And then they could come together when they roof. But if it's a brand new building, the roof, you got 20 years in it. Right. Right. So it's one thing to be in an apartment, paying rent consistently and never thinking I can do any more than that. Well, what if I say, let me start you where you're comfortable with. You're in an apartment, right? But it's now a condo. It's something that you can get equity in. And as time goes on, it grows and you can make sell it. And then you might be ready to move to a house now that you've been through this experience and work with other people together. And mm-hmm. then you may keep it or have somebody living it with you, you know, 
one of your other family members take it on and go to the next thing. Right. So for us, we want to teach you about how to invest in real estate and how to build real estate. You know, if you want to learn how to get a 203 code program, if we're doing your house, we want you to sit and walk through the whole process with us. And we explain to you every single solitary thing you're doing so that you understand. And if you want to do it again, then we'll take you to the next home and help you do it again. Because that's neighborly. That's everybody working together to build one house at a time, one block at a time, one community at a time. Yeah, I love that. And then talk a little bit about some of the sustainability things that you're seeing, particularly in Baltimore and development, whether it's green roofs or just other sustainable features that people are looking for that you're looking to incorporate in your developments. We're doing the real fundamental things like the dual flush toilets, the LED lighting. We're doing so many things in terms of making sure that the windows we're using we're using the double pane windows. We're using the faucets that mm-hmm. doesn't constantly run hot. We're using the hot water heaters. All of our units have tankless hot water heaters. Nice. So you're only heating the water <clears throat> as you use it. And we're using gas usually and those tankless hot water heaters. And they, they don't take up as much space. Mm-hmm. So they keep your water bill down. Your du- dual flush toilets, you're not using as much. They keep your water down. Mm-hmm. We use the double pane windows so that you keep your heat in. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a lot of things to keep all your, your heating bills and everything down. Yeah. I'm excited that you're doing that because I meet some developers who are still not sold, if you will, on the sustainability aspects, or they're thinking, well, if I'm doing affordable housing, then those people can't afford sustainable features or, the, or black people or brown people don't care about sustainability. There's these kind of myths that are out there that to some extent try and other or separate the idea of black and brown people wanting to have sustainable features in their apartments. And it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, like black and brown people have always been sustainable out of necessity. The amount of systemic things that we've had to go through, we haven't had the luxury to be wasteful. So we've had to be resourceful to make sure that we're using and getting the most out of everything that we have. So this myth of, oh, well, Black people don't care about sustainability blows my mind that it exists. Whenever I do talk to developers, particularly developers like you, who are actually understanding that, no, we need to make sure we have these features in there because not only is it good for the tenants because it's going to keep their utility bills down, keep them more comfortable in their spaces. It's going to save them money and it's good for the environment. It's like, it's a no brainer. <laughs> a lot of the people I find who say that don't look like us. Exactly. Oh, looking at the bottom line. Exactly. Uh, it, it, mm-hmm. But my thing is we're building affordable luxury. See, I think when you walk into your home, mm-hmm. it's self-actualization. And if I can walk into something that makes me feel like it's home and not that it's affordable stuff like laminate that'll break up really quickly but you know first if if i can expose you to something that you deserve not that i'm giving you because quote they say you're affordable Mm -hmm. everyone deserves to have a beautiful home it's a place that they enjoy and has the highest quality of things the home is where you go to every day and if you go there every day and you look around you say god thank you for what you've given me here and i didn't pay an arm and a leg for it and i got some really really good nice things then that might make you want to aspire to have a little bit more because now I have this. Mm-hmm. But if I'm just giving you, and nothing against Home Depot, but just the basic Home Depot cabinets that'll fall apart after. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I think people who are ready to buy, they want better. Mm-hmm. Why they wouldn't be ready to buy. Right, exactly. 
And that's the thing where it's particularly with the affordable housing projects that we do, you shouldn't feel like, oh, I'm in a unit that's affordable. You shouldn't feel like you're less than because you're in an affordable unit. That That's not the way that design should happen. Yeah. And it's, it's not a good look. And which I think is the reason why they keep going around in circles and circles and circles, because you're telling people subconsciously that they can't do any better, that you don't deserve any better. And this is right. all that you should have. Right. No. Right. Exactly. And like the, the mindset of designers trying to be like, oh, well, those people don't deserve those nice things because of X, Y, or Z. So it's the mindset of the haves and the have nots and how design can perpetrate that by right. even just the decision of, okay, well, these people don't get that or those people do get that. So anyways, it's always something that I'm fascinated by because design is not neutral by any means, regardless no. of how often I no. know some architects try to pretend like it is. Not at all. And, and so for us, we're just trying to create a model that creates self-actualization. Just little things, I think, make a difference. I, I hate when I have to walk into a unit. And I, I just feel like they just get the least expensive thing they threw up in here. Mm-hmm. And then when it falls off the wall, it's nothing to do with the developer. It has everything to do with the person. But you gave me pretty much the cheapest thing that they made. Right. 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 <laughs> And it wasn't made to last. So Mm -hmm. it's all on me. Right. So is that something that got you into construction? Just seeing the the way different units were being constructed? I couldn't stand it. Like, I know this probably sounds so petty. Like, I hate when I walk into a kitchen Mm -hmm. and the refrigerator jets out from everything else. Yes. Big gap at the top. And I'm thinking to myself, why? You know, why is it that we can't get a refrigerator that fits in the depth? Why can't we get a cabinet there that fits that or put a filler on top? So it's just a smooth and clean mm-hmm. line. Why can't we do that? Or let me just throw the refrigerator over here and throw a cabinet on top of it. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, that excessive not a big deal. But no, it's a big deal because it has everything with dealing with people and what they think they deserve. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. So in terms of the construction side, you're a general contractor as well. So how long after you did your first rehab, did you get more fully into general construction? It was a graduate process. We did about five houses together, me and Jared. And from there, I went on. Mm-hmm. I did start to do two units and four unit buildings. I kept myself between two and 10 units in D.C., And I started to meet people. I started to educate myself. Mm -hmm. I started to understand the process totally. Because when I started out, I went every single day to be there. Yeah. I picked out everything. I asked questions about everything. I learned on the job. I I got taken sometimes because they knew I didn't know. But once once you know, you know, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's a lot of things that I learned just being there every day. Just on a job experience Mm -hmm. every day. And so I, I think it took me three to five years to understand how to systematically do it, how to put systems in place, who to hire, who not to hire, what mm-hmm. to expect, insurances, bonding, all these things I had to learn. And it was a process. And I still learn because, you know, things are ever changing in, in the construction, all kinds of different products come up. Because every two years I would go to the International Builder show in um, Las Vegas or Florida, they would alternate sites and everything would be there. I mean, just all kinds of cameras, all kinds of appliances. Every major brand was there. Bo was there. Lowe's was there. (laughs) Everything you could possibly that was new coming out was Mm -hmm. there. Trucks, 
for the contractors were there. And then they had a day where you, they called it a house that they built for the for the show. Right. And they were all the new stuff in it. Blew in my mind. I didn't even realize that something like this existed. That's amazing. It's, it's done by the National Association of Home Builders there in D.C. And they do an IBS show. It's called the International Builder Show. And then they have a kitchen and bath section. And, it, and they do it every year. And every new product, every tool for contractors, trucks, cabinets, kitchen, flooring. I mean, it takes you at least three days to get through it. Classes. Just everything. Oh, okay. Everything. And it's amazing. All the things they have in windows, every window manufacturer. Everybody comes to this show. It's like the big deal of the industry to come. Good to know. And so that was really a great experience for me just to go there. I would go every other year. I was going to go in 20, but that didn't work out. Yeah. Yep, that <laughs> happened. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it. so all of those experiences, I've taken classes. I think that's the other thing. I think every year you should dedicate spending a certain amount of money on just educating yourself. Mm-hmm. And I have nothing against college degrees and all. I've done all that stuff. But what I, I know, if you self-educate yourself on the things that you're doing mm-hmm. and you make it a habit, Every year to invest, invest in yourself, you get that money back tenfold. Absolutely, absolutely. And so that's how I learned the business. I really hands on being there day to day. Now, let me be clear: I was never the chick. I never picked up a hammer, and I've never nailed anything into anything. Huh. I promise you. Okay, never. I've always <laughs> been the person. I can now. I can point and manage like a big dog, and I can tell you what it looks like, and I can see what it looks like. But I have no desire. And let me tell you why, because one time I called myself painting a condo. I said, mm-hmm. I could do this. It didn't turn out well. <laughs> and so, you know, I said, okay, Tanya, you need to stay in the managing the position. You don't need to be in here trying to do anything because that's not going to work. Yeah. Right. But that's and, such a that's such good self-awareness because I feel like so often, I know I struggle with sometimes we're feeling like I need to be doing everything as opposed to just managing it. But it's like the management piece is still massively important to get it all done. Like it doesn't happen yes. without the management piece. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I learned that big time. I said, Mm-mm. now would I ask questions how it should be framed? You know, do I understand what blocking is and 16 on center, 12 on center, 24 on center? <laughs> You right. know, I joys two by two. I understand all that because I've watched it. I've, you know, we've got a building down to the floor. So I know mm-hmm. what it should look like. So I get it. I mean, I've sat at enough inspections. I've waited on enough inspectors. I've had people not do things they should have done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned from that. And it's a lot. I'm a very visual person. So it was easy for me to learn that way. Mm-hmm. And I asked questions. Yeah. And I would hire construction people or inspectors to come in and look in. Because I, if I felt like it wasn't right and I thought you weren't telling me the truth, I hired somebody to come in and tell me. Gotcha. Yeah, so. that makes sense. As you've been going along in the process, because you mentioned that when you started, you're like, I'm 33. I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to do this. <laughs> you know, and you mentioned that you got taken a few times. What kept you going in terms of still keeping the vision alive? So I think beneath it all, I never wanted to work for anyone. So I knew that I had to work to eat. I had to understand and make, and I was going to get knocked down and had to get back up. Mm-hmm. Example, my journey at 1015 throughout my whole time doing construction, this building has taken me the longest to get done for several reasons. One, I've had to invest a lot of my own money in it because it wasn't appraised for what the things I wanted to do in it. 
But I think things work out in God's time because now as time has evolved and now that I've got a new appraisal on it, I will be able to get my money out of it. And so it's for twofold. One, because I made the investment and because the quality of the things that are within it and everything in it is brand new. And there's been some things we're right on the other side of the east side that are comparable to what I have on the west side. So I've been able to get the pricing for it. And so I'm grateful for that. And I just think that obviously it was God's intention for it to take this long so that I could get to the point, <laughs> you know, because I can't see any other. I mean, it's just stuff that just that makes sense to me. I'm telling you, the experiences I've had in Baltimore on this one project, I've never had in D.C. Hmm. Like a year to get gas into a building. Yeah, that's wild. A year to go through a chaps process. You know, that's two years. <laughs> Thank God I had the money to hold some of this, right? Right. Uh, but now it's getting to the point, I've got to get it done and, and and we're almost there. If it didn't take this long, I wouldn't have not be able to ingrain myself in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. meet the people I've met, mm-hmm. have the opportunity to do the projects that I'm having the opportunity to do, mm-hmm. have putting this whole vision together, seeing that I now can be a part of the change instead of just being one of the other one-off developers developing in the neighborhood. Right. So on the other hand, it's way more upside to it than it's been a downside. And so by the grace of God, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be in Baltimore and we surely are going to make a difference. That's imperative for us. I'm just getting chills. Like I'm loving all of that. <laughs> As you've been meeting more of the people in the neighborhood and hearing more of the stories of the neighborhood, is there a sense of the current residents having a, a remembering or nostalgia of what the neighborhood used to be before it started declining? So there's two guys that I've had the opportunity to talk to who told me about the neighborhood. Like Lord Baltimore used to be the theater where all the white people would go to. Mm-hmm. And then the theater, I can't recall the name of it off the top of my head now. And the 1500 block was where all the black people went to. And Baltimore Street was a thriving street. Mm-hmm. Lots of businesses, clothing, shoes. You know, they had the horse and buggy with the fruit that still kind of comes around now. Mm-hmm. They had this historical Oshmira building. It was a really nice pieces of property that were sitting there before they knocked it all down. That's the other thing. It's a lot of urban infield in this neighborhood that you really can develop and make beautiful again. And you don't get that in a lot of cities. That's why I mean back to 40 acres in the mule. Mm-hmm. You can get those acres. If we as Black people come together and strategically build back our neighborhoods together. I don't know if I mentioned, but we're also doing a neighborhood crowdfund. And part of the crowdfund is we want the community to have equity in the crowdfund and get a revenue return. And then their preferred part when we sell. Oh, interesting. Um, so that everyone's building back this community and you have a say and you invest. Yeah. So together we make a difference. But at the end of the Baltimore street, to answer your question, there's so many things that I've heard about it. Mm-hmm. And when I look at some of the bigger structures there, they have so much beauty to me. If the walls could talk, I'm sure there'd be some great stories to tell. <laughs> um, Absolutely. That's one of the things that I love about walking through old buildings and just kind of imagining what they were when they were thriving. And particularly just knowing that Buildings don't pop up out of nowhere. They're built for specific reasons by specific people. And so it's kind of like imagining what it was and then re-envisioning what it could be. Because, you know, you see what it is and you're like, this was something so much more than what it currently is now. And it could be something more again. So, yes, I'm still with you with that whole, the building (laughs) will all speak to you. I get you. (laughs) (laughs) They do. And, uh, you know, 
It may sound crazy, but it's true. So where we're doing the Villa Center at the 1400 block, that was an old furniture store. And they said the man had, used to have the building packed up with all kinds of things. You know, mm-hmm. you couldn't get in there. You were squeezing by. He had <laughs> a packed up furniture store. I'm going to have to the floors. But the architecture and the windows and the mm-hmm. columns and the floor joists then, you know, the joists they made back then, like, I mean, they had real two by fours. <laughs> right. Not the nominal stuff that we have. <laughs> so, I mean, it, yeah, these buildings have a lot. And what we're creating um, in the 1400 block is we're going to call it the Villa Center. And the reason we call it the Villa Center is because when I was growing up, it took a village to raise children. Mm-hmm. So let's build back a village center, right? And this village center is the center of the octopus and everything expands out from it. Small businesses here. Let's support these small businesses. That's another thing that we're going to do in the crowdfund. We're going to teach these small businesses who need anywhere from $100,000 to $50,000 to start their business, how to crowdfund that money, how to get people to be a part of that, how to teach them how to build their back systems, just really have the fundamentals in place because business is systems. And mm-hmm. most people, no matter what it is, at some point, business is our system. Right. And your business should always be able to run without you. Mm-hmm. And no one really tells you that. You have to learn that. Right. Often people go into business because they want to build something beautiful and thriving, but then they become a slave to it. And if they become a slave to it, it's because they don't know any better especially if you're the first business owner. And unless you can get into the right programs and somebody teach you and tell you something differently, mm-hmm. you can't do any better. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like when I, it's one of those things that when I uh, ran a small practice, I was obsessed with systems because it's one of those things where it's like, if I, if I can't take a vacation because the business won't run without me, I don't have a business. I have a job. Exactly. <laughs> like I need to be able to step away and let the exactly. business keep doing what it needs to do. And it, the only way that happens is with systems. Right. And you want perpetuity. You want it to live past you. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yep, exactly. Um, part of your legacy, you know, leave it to your children. I mean, that's what the Rockefellers did, right? If we as Black and Brown people can build families mm-hmm. and build businesses, and let's just start with turning our money over in our own communities one time. Can we just do it one time? Just once. Just once. Just once. All right. If we can get into the flow of that, and then we start doing it twice, and we start teaching it to our kids like at a young age. So we need to learn about financial literacy, how important it is, because we could never work for as much money as we can invest and make. Right, exactly. <laughs> you never can keep up with it. So if you understand how to manage your money, mm-hmm. I mean, and stop and buying all these things that the moment you walk out the store with them, they don't have the same value you paid for. Them. Right, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it would make a huge, huge difference. Mm-hmm. and our family and our legacies. And the other thing that I'm really big on Baltimore, and you brought it up earlier, is about the redlining thing, mm-hmm. is I, I want us to green line neighborhoods. I think we need to create a policy about green lining neighborhoods. <laughs> if it's then bring it 180, because if redlining started in Baltimore, what better place would it be to green line Baltimore? Yeah. And so that's why the fund is important for us in terms of having people invest in it. And so the banks can't say, well, we can't finance you. Well, we put programs in place that teach you. You may not be ready to be bankable right now, but we will mm-hmm. bank on you based on if you follow these things. All those systems were put in place to make us feel that we were less than. Mm-hmm. That's why they feel that when you talk about design that, you know, we only need to use certain products for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, that's why when you talk about in terms of having a sustainable home, using green, wanting to do all the things that make our bills more amenable for us, they don't think we need those things because they don't think that we deserve it or that we even care. So here it is. How can you think that if you never even understood the culture? Better yet, have you even asked the questions? Have you done some kind of focus group and asked questions? Or is it just an assumption? Right. Exactly. And all of that is how urban renewal happened because the politicians were seeing blight. They weren't seeing communities. They weren't seeing people. They were saying, oh, those buildings don't look good. And so there's so many, so many instances of that where the people making decisions that haven't been black or brown people haven't been asking those people who would be affected by their decisions what they need, what they want, what would actually help their lives improve. They just made decisions from the top and not paying attention to what the end product was going to be. And that's what the U.S. is built on. I mean, mm-hmm. when I think about Congress <laughs> and I think about most of the people that represent us, mm-hmm. they have no concept of how the rest of the world lives, but they make decisions for the rest of the world. I know that the Black Lives Matter thing was you know, a, a movement and a mantra for us as people, but it irks me every time I hear it because I keep thinking, we built this country. Our lives matter, whether you want to say they matter or not. Exactly. I mean, the reason you have your wealth is anybody can have a building built on free labor. Uh-huh. It's that it's kind of that lack of recognition of kind of how how we got here and how things actually operated. All the people of color have been here in this country. We're not new. <laughs> like, right, exactly. we've, been, we've been doing things, building things, leaving our mark on history. Because one of the, the misconceptions of, oh, well, this country is built by white men. No, 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 not at all. Like white men, that's where the narrative has been focused. But by no means were they the main character or the only character in this history or the story of this country. Yeah. I don't need you to tell us that Black Lives Matter. I need you to treat us with respect, that we are equal whether you like it or not. We all come here and go the same way. So why is it that you're superior? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that myth of white supremacy and white superiority. It's like, no, yeah. not at all. Well, let's demystify some things and dispel some myths. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and someone, uh, and one of my friends said, you really need to be able to build that story out well and tell people. And I, I never think anything about it. I promise you, I never think anything about it. The only underlying thread for me always was I wanted to do two things. I either wanted to be an anchor woman mm-hmm. or I wanted to own my own business. And when I was coming out of school and they told me an anchor woman only made $15,000 a year, mm. I said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <I didn't... laughs> Fair. Right? But I didn't know that I could be the producer of the show and I could run. So again, you don't know what you don't know. You right. can't make a really good decision. And I didn't really think to ask anybody. I just made a unilateral decision thinking, hey, that ain't gonna work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna do this business thing. And for the most part, I had one job coming out of college with Southland Corporation, which was 7-Eleven at the time. And I did that for a little bit. And I just said, I don't wanna work for anybody. And I had to figure it out. So I started out with a courier company that was easy to do at the time. And next thing I did was read an ad in the paper. And here I am. Amazing. Well, I'm glad you read that ad and gave him a call. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song Fireflies from her debut album, Other People's Secrets. 
which by the way is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time, remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I could see us catching them And setting them free Honey, that's what you do That's what you do to me